Hello! A few quick notes before we begin. Uh, first, You Are Good is made possible with your support by way of patreon.com slash youaregood. There you can find bonus episodes of the show. We have a bonus episode coming up, which is kind of a nice accompaniment to this episode. It's about Burn After Reading, the Coen Brothers 2008 spy comedy, I guess. It's kind of not right, but we have condensed versions of our movie chats. Uh, they're, you know, about a half hour to 45 minutes long. Sometimes they're about that. Sometimes they're just about feeling. Sometimes they're just about friends catching up. But this one is about that movie. You can find that at patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us at Patreon. We really appreciate it. It makes us be able to do more things and it supports the production of the show. And thank you to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial video and content production company based in Portland, Maine, but does work throughout these here United States if you need videos produced for whatever you're doing, for your commercial venture, for your creative venture. If you need that sort of thing done, talk to the folks at Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. If you're interested, we release a companion playlist to each week's episodes. You can find that in the show notes. Uh, there are songs that are inspired by the episode, by our conversation. You can find that uh, there. Just look in the show notes right there. You'll find a link to it. I think that's it for now. I think that's all you need to know. How's it going out there in you world? We really appreciate you hanging out with us. It's really nice to have you here. Let us know how you're doing over on Twitter. Let us know how you're doing over on Instagram. We would love to hear what you're up to. You can message us on Patreon. You can message us via the website. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Suey, podcaster, podcaster, podcaster. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm trying stuff out. That one wasn't a win, but I tried it. <laughs> you are listening to You Are Good, which is a feelings podcast about movies. Sarah, what's the point of this show? Oh, gosh. The point of the show is, is well, for me, we started doing this show because it was the start of the pandemic and I was dying inside and I knew that I would my soul would remain alive if I had to talk about a movie with you once a week because you're one of my best friends. So real. This is such a real answer. So the point of the show is to keep my heart and soul going. And if the rest of you enjoy it, then that is fine also. We love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to hopefully re- kickstart your soul once a week. <laughs> and if your soul gets kickstarted, like that's awesome. We realized that if you if you attack talking about feelings with people head on, they get squirrely. If you're like, hey, guess what? Well, yeah. Feelings chat. They're like, nah, no, thanks. If you t- <laughs> walk up to someone randomly and are like, let's talk about feelings. They will run away. They will not walk. They will run. They will scurry at least. However, if you say... You want to talk about Mission Impossible with us? However, what's your favorite movie? What's your top five movie? Oh, everyone wants to talk about Mission Impossible. Be like, what's your favorite part of Mission Impossible? Then we get the feelings in. Then that's where the feelings come in. So we talked about Mission Impossible. Tell us about this chat. (sighs) This was such a fun one. We talked with my friend Nicholas Russell, who was born to talk about Mission Impossible. I cannot stress this enough. <laughs> what do you think it is about? So just tell us who Nick is and like, why, why is he a person where this is, this makes sense? So I would call myself kind of a, like a movie fan. Like I watch probably more than the average number of movies for a human being. And I definitely like them. And a lot of my like early happy memories are of watching movies. But Nicholas is someone who I would say is he's a film guy. Mm. He's a buff. Like he goes to festivals, you know, where he does when it's safe to do so. And he he's the one who tells me about like what movies I should watch that are like coming around the mountain. And 
he also loves Mission Impossible, the whole series, very deeply. And I remember being like, okay, I find it super interesting that you were like this big film connoisseur. Practically any movie I mention you've seen. And out of that vast well of knowledge and also enthusiasm, this is something that's very dear to you. And I want to know why. And so we've watched several of the Mission Impossible movies together. And yeah, I just wanted to talk about the original Mission Impossible with him because of that. Um, and because he's an up and coming writer and I love his work. And I think that writers are fun to do podcasts with. And also that like this gives us a chance to talk about Tom Cruise and like, why are Tom Cruise? Yeah, this interesting thing happens where, and we've covered two other Tom Cruise movies so far. I hope at some point soon we cover The Color of Money, but... Yeah, I've never seen that one. Oh, it's... Oof, love love it. I re- Tom Cruise movies are specific for us because it becomes an opportunity, this is our third, to mm-hmm. try to understand Tom Cruise. I feel like there are a few other movie stars and like he's a movie star which is such a specific brand of person but there are a few other Mm -hmm. movie stars or actors where kind of really the only window you have into them is the movie projects they select so this is this is fascinating and if you love or hate tom cruise these conversations are for you i think and also i think like people are kind of concerned about tom cruise totally yeah And that's why we're so curious, because like Brad Pitt also is like a big star. He's not super accessible in that modern way. But I I personally have a sense and I think most people do that like Brad Pitt's going to be fine. (laughs) I don't have to waste my time worrying about Brad Pitt. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So this is like at once. This is a really sweeping conversation about spy movies about these movies in particular Mm -hmm. and it's also spy daddies spy daddies exactly and it's also another opportunity for us to try to figure out what the fuck's going on with tommy (laughs) yeah why are spies what is tom cruise you are mission impossible (laughs) and this is seasonally a cold movie but it's it's very seasonally a blockbuster summer film It is one billion percent a summer movie. It has a big, I mean, this movie is like centerpiece to centerpiece, basically. (laughs) Yes, that is the truth. Alex, what what did you most enjoy about watching Mission Impossible for this episode? Being reminded that Emilio Estevez is in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) It's so joyful. You're just like, oh, it's Emilio. (laughs) It almost feels like someone took the movie that existed and was like, you know, it'd be fun is if we uh, we just put Emilio Estevez (laughs) in it. It would be hilarious for people who revisit this. They wouldn't remember that he was in it, whatever. It feels so fantastic that you're like, that's That's honestly always the first thing I think about it. I also love how Emilio Estevez, he gets killed in an elevator shaft in this movie and not only does he, I mean, there's really nothing he can do. So, you know, I can't fault him for that. But also the second before <laughs> he's like, he's on an elevator that's, you know, rising toward the ceiling. And the second before they reach the ceiling, he lifts his head back and looks up <laughs> so that some machinery can go straight into <laughs> some places. And you're just like, Emilio, like, why embrace it so wholeheartedly? I don't know. <laughs> Put your arms up over your head or something. Sure. You know what I think it accomplishes for Emilio Estevez to be there, though, is that Emilio Estevez and Tom Cruise together have this total Brat Pack energy. Like Tom Cruise, I don't think he was officially in the Brat Pack, but he practically was. He was in taps and stuff. And then we have spoilers. 
this reversal in the first act of the movie where we start off as this kind of like relatively lighthearted ensemble spy drama and then all of our spies get killed off except for Tom Cruise and then it's like Tom Cruise is all alone and in an adult world and it feels like a like Brat Packer all by himself in the big world he's the daddy now kind of coming <laughs> big story and Emilio Estevez being there makes it very clear to me what's what's going on there I really like that this feels like it's like Tom Cruise's first movie as a grown-up. Oh, yeah, I think so. This is a grown-up story. Yeah. It's a growing, it's a building's roman. <laughs> and he becomes, as we talk about, he becomes over the course of the franchise, the dad of the franchise. This is wonderful. This is a this is a very Why Our Dads episode. Yes. For those of you who missed the old formula. All right, let's get into it. Let's spy. Are you ready for a slump slumber? <laughs> Let's get ready to slumber. Slumble? Are you, re- are you ready for a s- slumber? Sl- God damn. Are you Alex. ready for a summer, <laughs> a summer blockbuster? <laughs> you are just falling apart like someone finishing Iron Man. <laughs> are you ready for a slumber box buckster? Alex, I'm under a blanket. I am ensconced in a pillow fort that I have made for acoustic reasons and also because it is the house of my love for Tom Cruise's performance in this movie. <laughs> so we're talking about Mission Impossible, which I'm so excited about. And what kind of mission is it? It's an impossible one. <laughs> <laughs> Impossibly. I don't know why they keep sending people on these. When they set you up at the end, at the beginning of the setup to be like, you're probably going to die. And if so, we're not going to talk about it. Uh, you know, it's not it's not going to be fun. So who do we before you tell us what this movie is about? Who's here to do this with us, Sarah? And why are we talking about Mission Impossible? We're talking about Mission Impossible with my friend Nicholas Russell who I truly believe loves Mission Impossible more than anyone else. It's probably true. Except for Tom Cruise. It's a tie. (laughs) (laughs) The Tobin Bell of the Mission Impossible series, if you will. The the person whose singular love for and belief in his character keeps the entire thing miraculously alive. The Tobin Bell. That's wonderful. (laughs) Nicholas, tell us about you uh, uh, before we dive in. I am a freelance writer. And uh, depending on when this comes out, columnist of the like newly launched Gawker. Ooh, that's so exciting. Sarah, you're going to give an outline of what this movie is. I want to talk when we do dive in. And we've done this a bit with Jamel when we talked about Clear and Present Danger. But I want to talk about like what spy movies are. And like what their significance is. You know what they are? They're movies with Henry Cherney in them, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) What is this movie about? Oh, my gosh, Alex. (laughs) I'm so happy you asked me. Okay, I would like to just hear a ding every time I I screw something up (laughs) trying to get through this this plot. Okay, Ethan Hunt, our main character, played by Thomas Cruise. He works for the IMF, because, of course, the (laughs) International Monetary Fund. (laughs) Is it the Impossible Missions Federation? It's force. Force, of course. Yes. And, okay, so he works for the Impossible Missions Force. And we open by seeing his boss, Jim, played by John Voight, 
who has the sinister look of an Applehead doll, <laughs> being given the little video, which is showing him his next mission should he choose to accept it, which is to take his usual team, who he's being told what they're like, even though they're his usual team, to an embassy in the Ukraine. Ah! Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they filmed it in Prague. Okay, can I jump in here? Yes, please. The movie opens with them interrogating someone. Yes, of course. And then they go to Prague because they need to get a list of agents. There's always a list. I think it's like almost always in every movie maybe except for number two is a list. Which is kind of great because we talk a lot in, we or or it has been talked a lot about how in superhero movies, the stakes are too high. Like yeah. the stakes are too high to care about. And in, at least in this movie, it's a list of people that you kind of know who and how they are. And in theory, you don't want them to get hurt. And also it is literally a CD, which is wonderful that everyone's chasing a CD. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Okay. So he's assembling the team and the opening of the movie, in my opinion, has this very fun fan servicey to the TV show feeling where you're like, they're a team. They're cracking jokes. Emilio Estevez is there. They seem really confident. (laughs) What a pleasant surprise. Yes. And then, of course, Brian De Palma is also going to pull a classic horror move and do what he did in Dress to Kill, one of the most unforgivably transphobic films of all time also starring Michael Caine, where you kill off a big star really early and then people are like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to expect. Anything could happen. Yeah. <laughs> and so we begin with this very light kind of capery beginning where we're looking at gadgets and we have a Danny Elfman score so it can turn from like playful to menacing on a dime, which is really fun. And basically they go to do this mission And everything goes wrong and everyone gets killed, apparently, (laughs) except Tom Cruise, which leads to one of the great lines in film, which is. (laughs) Okay, no, I want you to say it. (laughs) Well, it's a cool. Yeah. The part where he comes back to the hotel after the great sequence at the like restaurant with Henry Journey. Mm -hmm in the fish in like the gum that explodes and the like the cia operative who's like i'm gonna have a meeting with someone who i think is the mole who we were trying to find exactly within our agency and i think that this could go really badly really fast and so i'm gonna meet him in a restaurant called aquarium that's mostly an aquarium because i don't think that could be hard to control for at all i mean i know that the literal high wire act of them breaking into Langley is like memorable set piece from that movie. But the meeting at the restaurant is like my favorite part of the movie. Mm. It's so over the top. I don't know. It's like Brian De Palma at his most himself. The angles get really weird very quickly. They're not even Dutch angles. They're like a whole other country at that point. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, you know, really close up. Is it an homage to another thing? Because it also reminded me of the recent Invisible Man movie. Like there's a whole scene that like that plays like that in a big way, like sort of like as a dinner thing. There's like all these angles. It's like thing you don't expect happens. And it feels like I feel like so much of this movie are in Mission Impossible are nods to other movies from 50 years before that I never saw. Well, it has to be. I mean, like with Brian De Palma, there's no, it's a safe bet that that is truly the case. Sure. But also sure. I feel like as these movies have gone on, like Tom Cruise 
in an effort to prove to people that he is like not an alien. It's like, yeah, I watch a lot of movies. Like he's like, yeah. he said it on talk shows. He's like, I watch like two movies a day or something else like crazy or it's crazier than that. And like, even I think that's kind of too many movies. Like <laughs> that's how many movies I watch when like I'm depressed and doing a lot of laundry. Yeah, it's just like, all right, dude, like, I get it. Like, I get it. You're a human. I know. It's just like, whoa, Even dude, though you're whoa. failing to age in any appreciable way. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that Tom Cruise pays homage to the things he loves without knowing he's doing it. Sure. I think that there is, like, a definite slapsticks, like, silent film sort of physical comedy that he's very good at that mm. is best scene when he's playing Ethan Hunt because especially as he's gotten older and has to keep doing the same stuff and it's not as easy anymore there's like a very sort of like not mugging for the camera but you see him sort of like playing up the fact that he's been doing this shit for a really long time anyway sorry to get back to what we were talking about when he gets back to the hotel he like is hallucinating this sort of thing where like Jim, who got shot on the bridge, comes back and he's bleeding and he's like, Ethan, why didn't you save me? Whatever. And like, it turns out to actually be Jim's wife. And Ethan pulls a gun on her because he's still he's like still in his hallucination. And then he like sees her and she's freaking out. because She's like, where is everyone? And then Sarah, for <laughs> the, the line, he says, she's like, wake up, Claire. Jim's dead. They're all dead. He just yells it like so loudly. (laughs) It's that explosive Tom Cruise acting. Yeah, exactly. It's great. That we all love. Just a pocket full of dynamite. I love this performance because there's so much happening, I think. I feel like we're (laughs) just going to talk about that for the rest of this, however much time it takes to get to the bottom. But yeah, so what happens is the mission goes south. It seems like everyone has died. And then it, it seems like everyone except Claire has died. And so are we going to get a sex scene at any point or okay? Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And Brian Palmer's like, that was me in the 80s. I'm a new Brian or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird that such a horny director. Yeah. Had not one horny moment this whole movie. It's Brian De Palma. Subtextually, we could talk about the horniness of trains. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say this. There's like so much obvious physical tension between Ethan and Claire. Mm -hmm. And they did shoot a sex scene. Mm. (gasps) There there was a sex scene, but they Mm. cut it from the movie which i think is for the better honestly yeah totally because this movie doesn't want to have a sex scene in it you would have like movie scene rejection syndrome that's interesting and so basically because everything has gone south the cia well not the cia the imf (laughs) so the imf decides that he's the mole and he's disavowed which is one of the big words in the mission impossible series i feel the themes i can think of are like masks disavowed Tom Cruise almost dying. There being scenarios where the whole point is like, it's statistically crazy for you not to die. So have fun with that. Every scenario is always that. It is only something that Ethan Hunt can do. Right. There always has to be a plot contrivance, which is not a bad thing, that he is the only person who is able to do the thing that ends up being like the big set piece for the movie, which is like... Him hanging from a wire or being on the side of a building or hanging off from a plane or holding his breath for eight minutes. like Running as fast as he can. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Through a European city. And I would say before we get into 
the rest of the plot, which goes all over the place in a good way, I would put forth a theory that Mission Impossible has a lot in common with The Lion King Hmm. because they're both movies about you grow up and you have this kingdom and you have a dad and you're happy and you're like everyone has a job to do and a place and then the tables turn and daddy's dead and <laughs> you're to you're going to be blamed for it and you don't know which father figure to turn to and you have to run away so they have a mission the mission goes south almost everybody dies the IMF decides that Ethan Hunt is the mole Ethan Hunt is disavowed he runs off into the night after exploding an aquarium and he's going to he's going to get the knock list himself which is the MacGuffin that the original mission was based on. And he is going to find out who the real mole is and exonerate himself. It's also like the fugitive. In order to get the knock list to find the mole, they have to break into a vault at Langley. And that's the scene that everyone remembers. And then they have a channel chase where a helicopter goes into a tunnel and it's piloted by Jean Renault. And Ving Rames is a hacker. And... <laughs> some point after they have successfully broken into the vault at Langley, Ethan finds out that, in fact, John Voigt is A, not dead, and B, the mole, and it's very upsetting. And John Voigt reappears and he's like, your new dick boss, who's my boss, who thinks you're the mole, he's the mole. Wouldn't that be great? And you're like, oh, <laughs> and you're like, no, it's John Voigt's the mole. Daddy's the mole. And he's like, I'm the mole, and it's because I'm bitter that I make $62,000 a year, and I have a lousy marriage to a 30-year-old French woman who's literally the most beautiful person <laughs> on the planet right now. I'm bitter. And it turns out that Claire is in on it, which we only find out after she and Ethan have sex. Yeah, and then that's about when they have the channel chase. And then Vanessa Redgrave wants a CD. She doesn't get it. <laughs> And then at the end, Ethan Hunt, after apparently having no downtime, is on a flight just like John Voight was at the beginning. And they're like, would you care to watch a movie to learn about your next mission? And it's like, this guy doesn't get any downtime. Like, what? Does he have no, a cat? No. Not if you're that good. <laughs> does he have an apartment? Like, Nah, man. So this is the thing. Beyond in the introduction of his wife mm -hmm. in Mission Impossible 3, you really learn nothing about Ethan, except for the first movie where you learn yeah. a lot about him. You learn that he has parents. Just like Clark Kent, he has parents with a farm. And he's from Madison, Wisconsin. He's, is he? Which is insane to me. That's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I can't speak to the details because we know I'm shit at movie details, but that was an exquisite summary. Thank you. I got lost there in the third act. It's like, ah, uh, channel chase. Well, I think like this is one of those movies where it's like really like four things happens. Yeah. But like so many sub things happen that it can be confused to think that those are big things. It's a hard movie for me to follow. Yeah, yeah. So many details. Like, and I think you do best either knowing exactly what happens before you go in or being like, ah, uh, some, for some reason we're here right now. And it's very exciting. I think a lot of people who criticize <laughs> or who don't like the franchise are often perturbed by the fact that nothing new happens in each movie. But the whole point of the movie is that you have the template and each movie is just a, a different version of the template. So it's kind of nice because it's like, you know, what's going to happen, mm -hmm. but then sometimes they subvert it and you're like, whoa, okay, this is not what's what you expected. 
And I think one of the things that's so interesting, which goes back to what Sarah was saying about the Lion King, is that like Ethan, for the most part, because I would say the majority of these movies have been filmed post Tom Cruise being 40 Mm -hmm. in the absence of him having a kid, which like has always been the revelation, the plot revelation that I keep expecting them to do. Yeah. Which is that like he has like a kid somewhere that like comes back and is like going to try and kill him or something. Maybe they'll do that when he's 75, you know, like Harrison Ford. He'll be like, go jump off that airplane, Junior. If you had a kid with Claire, like which is probably not the case, the kid would be 25 by now. That kid could be an action star. (laughs) I keep hoping that I can like sort of psychically put out into the world that if they decide to make it that Tom Cruise and Tandy Newton had a kid, it could be me. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I could be in the franchise as their kid. Just put it out there. Have you been jumping off airplanes or anything lately? You have to practice for this. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom, uh, Ethan Hunt has never had a kid. He's been a husband, which has been like a really big thing for Tom Cruise, like post Katie Holmes. Like he wants mm. to be like the guy who's married and really reliable. And really, he turns into a father figure by just being the father of whatever team he's on. Mm. That's interesting to me because John Voight in the first one is really not a father figure to, like, really anyone else except for Ethan. Like, Mm. everyone else on the team is there having fun. They kind of, like, it's hinted at that they have their own lives and that they don't need a father figure. But Ethan is, you know, in the first one, the apex or maybe a little past the apex of Tom Cruise at his most like narcissistic, like or not narcissistic, <laughs> but just like, he's got like such a shitty grin, like at the beginning of the movie. And it's like Tom Cruise thought he had it all. No, it truly. And I think what's so interesting about th- these movies is that there seem to be the, like one of the few vehicles where stuff doesn't work out for him Mm. and like and that he has to rely on other people which is so interesting to me given that tom cruise wants you to believe that he can do literally fucking anything yeah i I think we watched the first four of these i that was to me like a really wonderful movie watching experience because i think what i love most is just watching movies with people who have like very long lasting and important relationships with them and just getting to experience that and I remember just watching I don't know what movie it was but he's just running full tilt like like no adult man ever runs (laughs) you know just like running like a child who has no concept of the need for endurance or like budgeting energy it's just like every second he's using everything he's got and I remember you just being like you can't teach that (laughs) (laughs) he has a singular obsession which is best admired when you don't look too closely but (laughs) It's truly, like, one of the things that, like, makes those movies so fun to watch is, like, literally him running and the situations in which he runs mm-hmm. and how over each movie it looks like it's harder and harder to do. But he's still doing it, like, 100%, which is wild to me because it's, like, you know they didn't get it in one take. Yeah. They have to go back the half mile or whatever that he ran and he has to do it all over again. I personally feel drawn to that because it's such a powerful It's like man against time in a way that is obviously like ultimately time always wins. But in this case, like it's you're watching someone put up a really good fight against time and it's just super compelling.
And I also find it really interesting that like, this is about the time when we start seeing the beginnings of this big wave that we now live inside of where TV is being cinematic. And this is a big like summer action movie acting like a TV show yeah, in many ways. And it has opening credits like a TV show, which I just love. Like the TV show it was. Yes. <laughs> but we guess with more money. From what I can understand, they did enough to make you aware of the fact that it was from the TV show. The theme is the same. You've got like the sort of same organization and sort of like background details. But from there, it becomes this radically different. It starts in a familiar place and then like kind of goes off into its own universe. Mm -hmm. It's like the only lifeline that Tom Cruise has now that is like reliably very popular around the world, makes a lot mm. of money, but also allows him to be the guy he wants to be, which is ultimately, I think, the underdog, which mm. is so funny when you think about Tom Cruise. Like, in what way, shape, or form is he, has he ever been an underdog? But with Ethan Hunt, and I think it says something about not his like media savvy, but maybe some sort of awareness of what his image is that the good graces of the audience are most activated when he's playing Ethan Hunt mm. because he is able to let you forget, even if it's only for a moment in like a two and a half hour movie that Tom Cruise is the person that he is <laughs> tons of movie stars Tons in history have, you know, tried to funnel the traits that they think are like most worthy or like noble into the characters they play such that like they hope that the fictional character and them will like fuse together in the audience's mind. And mm. so they'll become that person. And I feel like Ethan Hunt is like what Tom Cruise like wants everyone to believe he is. Yeah. His like private life blew up so publicly mm -hmm. post pre during Katie Holmes. He knows that like these movies can't actually mirror his actual life because it'll be too distracting yeah. for people. So he can't have a baby because then people will be like, oh, just like in real life, I have that weird publicity baby. In any other franchise, it's inevitable at this many movies, someone... Jigsaw had a baby. Yeah, it's like someone has a kid. It, it, it's just it's just how these movies work. Like someone has a kid that like shows up out of nowhere or they like shack up and settle down and then they have a kid, whatever. And like, it's almost as if it's like a point of pity or like sadness that like Ethan Hunt has never been able to settle down. But what I love about these movies is that there is never a point where the movie is trying to make you feel bad for him because they set up, and this happens, I think, most when Christopher McQuarrie, who is written and directed, sets up this idea that, like, Ethan Hunt is a gambling addict. Hmm. It's not even that he loves his job. It's just that he cannot not be the guy who does it because mm. he is addicted to the thrill of putting his life in danger and the thrill of being the only person who can do the thing that he does. It is very emblematic of where Tom Cruise is in his life and his career, where Ethan has now become such a huge character and the franchise has become so big that rather than them replaying their greatest hits and constantly referring to the old movies... Now it's about 
building up the myth of Ethan Hunt to the point where other characters have to talk about him while he's not there. And he is like, is is proven to be good because other people are saying so while he's not there, which is like, is pretty wild. I think of Scientology as being like extremely anti-therapy. You cannot equate that with therapy, but I also feel like this idea of like talking about Ethan Hunt feels like progress in an interesting way. Cause I feel like he begins as like this, like Maverick, or anyone else, he's like this classic wish fulfillment character where there's a guy and he's got issues, but the issues just make him cooler. Right. You know, just like when there's a troubled teen girl and she's like sullen, but that just means that vampires like her more. Well, it's an interesting too, if you think about it in contrast to Maverick, right? Where like the whole thing with Maverick is like, he just can't listen to authority. He can't listen to authority. Mm-hmm. He can't listen to authority. And then finally he learns to listen to authority. And if you think about Ethan Hunt as like, the other side of like this side of, of his career with Maverick. This is a Maverick that is wish fulfillment, but also started listening to the authority Mm -hmm. and in doing so just got fucked by that authority. In different hands, there is like a total like anti-government, (laughs) anti-establishment like sort of thing. The government doesn't trust Ethan Basically because he's too good at his job. No one is as good as Ethan Hunt. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the point that Sarah brought up, which is, is the most adroit reading of these movies, is that like at some point he's going to be disavowed. In the first 10 minutes of the movie, he's either going to be disavowed or on the run. And like the reason why is always the same. And Ethan Hunt's reaction to it is literally always the same, which is that it's like, (laughs) oh yeah, it's a mistake, whatever. I get it. I'll prove that I was right and that I didn't do anything wrong. He's like, you idiot babies. Even when Ethan's wife has been threatened, even when there's a gun to his best friend's head, Ethan does the thing that is right for the moment and not for everyone else. And like, that's like his biggest flaw well what what does he serve in this movie there's this interesting it's not an actual speech because like again like all the texas subjects basket of mcguffins we do have the moment where john voight dad dad standard work dad comes back and it's suggested that kittredge is the bad guy um he's the mole and the reason is because in it's so interesting that this movie is so old it has actual cold war commentary in it <laughs> the reason is cold war is over us covert organizations don't run the country anymore like now it's democracy which is hilarious yeah. especially based on what's coming globally which is highlighted in the fake mclaughlin group clip which also this movie has a fake McLaughlin group clip, which is just the best thing ever. Yes, that is awesome. That's laid on a a Mac browser, um, which is great. Anyway, so, so, okay. All that said, do these movies have any commentary about what Ethan serves? What is he doing this for? Are the organizations good or bad? Does it matter? Why does he continue to work here after they frame him (laughs) six times? I mean, Ethan Hunt is Captain America. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. And Captain America goes through this, yeah. He's Captain America after being dehydrated or made shrinky-dinked in an oven. I was so stressed out he never had a glass of water. This I honestly thought about that. He never drinks water. Oh my God, he didn't. Okay, and you know what? You know what else I was thinking about that made me really feel like a mom is the workplace that they have for the guy at Langley. 
I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that floor has got to be giving him eye strain. No, oh it was my the God. first bit of moisture I saw in the movie. That's where I thought about it. When, when you see him <laughs> drinking something, I'm like, Ethan has had nothing to drink this whole movie. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I and so many other people love Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven, because every time you see him, he's eating something. Yeah. Always and it's so eating. charming as a character trait. And you're not worried that he's hungry. <laughs> I mean, Ethan Hunt, like probably out of any cinematic character, has to be the one who needs the most calories, just given what he does. Oh, yeah. Way more than Rusty. Easily. Anyway, what is Ethan doing it for? (laughs) On no calories, which just feels of the Tom Cruise mythos where you're like, he doesn't age, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. He's a vampire. Do these movies have commentary in them or are they strict? Because even like the Marvel movies, like there's some something about geopolitics, something about blowback, something that we do have blowback mentioned. We have the Cold War mentioned in this, but I don't know. We have the Cold War mentioned in the first one. And then in terms of a movie that is reflective of the time that it was made, the third mm-hmm. one is definitely like bush era like mm. terrorism interrogation tortury sort of like mm. a, oh, wow. like okay. alias oh, yeah. lost because like jj abrams it's that was his first directing like feature oh wow jj abrams the writer of regarding henry yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the guy who created felicity alex and he made a mission impossible this guy's on to big things <laughs> he can do anything which does not mean he should but anyway yeah so <laughs> There's this whole part in the third one, Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in peace. After this like fake out interrogation scene where they kill Julia, Ethan's wife, whatever. And it re- it's a person wearing a mask who looks like her and it's not actually mm-hmm. her, whatever. His coworker, who's played by Billy Crudup, comes into the room and it's like a big reveal. Like, Ooh, he's bad. Dun, dun, dun. Like he's sitting, it's like great. He's like, there's this wild like little monologue he has where he talks about like what is going to happen once the bad guy gets the MacGuffin from this movie, which is this thing called the rabbit's foot. So they're going to sell it to the highest bidder. And then he mm. says, then our country is going to have a reason because it's going to be sold to a Middle Eastern buyer. We're going to have a reason to invade the Middle East and we're going to have reason to like stabilize the area and something about like we will do our jurisprudence to like bring freedom to that part of the, the world. And then literally at the end, he's like democracy wins. Wow. There is a like geopolitical sort of grittiness to that movie that like mm-hmm. is very out of character for this franchise mm. just because like is, these movies aren't really about serious things. But like that is the one moment where you're like, whoa. Hmm. Yeah. I think Roger Ebert in his review for the first one was like something like it's a movie that lives in the instant and for Mm. it to work, you also have to live in the instant with it. Hmm. You move from set piece to set piece. It all coheres by some traditionally convoluted plot. But the point really is that you're there for the moments that are really unbelievable or just really fun or funny or just exhilarating and there's a bead of sweat on his face and it, and it's sliding down his glasses. Then that hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like there's all these little moments in these movies that I think are so rewarding because yeah. you know that they were paying attention to not just the big picture sort of like chaos of the action, which is often really elegant in these movies, but like 
there are little moments that fans and like audience members are going to remember that have mm. absolutely nothing to do with the plot. I forget who said this. Someone said, if when you write a movie, you give people a handful of moments to remember and talk about later, like you've done your job. I'd love to talk about what is going on with dads in this movie mm-hmm. and like what the deal with spy movies is, period. Mm-hmm. Because, Nick, you said that we don't get a lot of Ethan Hunt story later, but we do learn a lot about like him here and at least his relationship with these guys in this movie. What's happening there and like why why do dads love these movies? <laughs> the Mission Impossible movies and spy movies in general have this weird fixation with being isolated, if that makes sense. Like often the protagonists are isolated from their government or isolated from their country or isolated like in the case of Jason Bourne from themselves and mm-hmm. like it paints like being a spy as even James Bond does this like even if it's sexy and cool and whatever there's like a, a distance and loneliness that's there that is exacerbated by the fact that you can never trust anyone And Mm -hmm. because you yourself are really good at obfuscation and like manipulating people and like going places unnoticed, you can never fully form like long lasting or healthy relationships with people, which Mm -hmm. is why I think in spy movies that star men, I should say, Mm -hmm. there is either like the surrogate dad figure or there is like the tragic love interest that either dies is killed, murdered, whatever, or has to go away because it's too dangerous to be with this person. Or she's just a spy. Or she is a spy herself, exactly. Like you can, the whole thing, you can never trust anyone. The first Mission Impossible has both of those things. It has a father figure to Ethan who there's like this really rowdy sort of like, oh yeah, everyone settle down. Come on, let's listen now. And it's like, it's really cool and it's like, oh, that's sweet. He's not the dad who's like overbearing. He's just the dad who's like, here's a little piece of advice. And then after everyone dies, Ethan is left with the wife of his father figure, mm-hmm. who is basically Ethan's age, mm-hmm. is more like hot stepmom than Ethan's actual mom. But there is still like a very weird sort of like, Freudian like mm-hmm. thing going on between Claire and Ethan. I can't get over him Jim being like a nothing but a lousy marriage. And it's like to Claire. <laughs> Does he also say he tasted the goods at some point about the stepmother? Yeah. Like he's like, I know it's hard to deny I've tasted the goods. And I was like, oh God, dad. <laughs> I know. It's well, it's also like, yeah, dude, it's like. Hey, dad, like I've spent a little time with mom and it sounds like you're a dick to her. Like, <laughs> If anything, like I said, Claire is his stepmom. He still slept with her, which is really weird. But he like knows that like Jim can't be all he's cut out to be because Jim has this facade of being this really cool person. And then it all comes down at the, in the last mm-hmm. third of the movie where he's like, nah, dude, she sucks. And like you suck <laughs> and everyone's a loser. And I killed all your friends. Ethan, his respect for authority is tempered by, I think, a suspicion that is of people's like sort of selfish nature and their sort of mm. ulterior motives, which I think is why you really don't see him have 
a father figure for the rest of the series, he himself sort of becomes a father figure that does his best to look out for his teammates, but not try and interfere with their personal lives or like get too close to them. And Ethan seems to try and be the epitome of the epitome of the good version of every bad thing that ever happens, which is like, Hmm. He had a bad father figure. He's going to be the good father figure. Mm. He saw a bad marriage and people who in this line of work have bad marriages. He's not going to be that guy. But it's also this like fantasy of, I think, like a lot of men who are like, given the right opportunity, I would be a hero. Like I am a future hero. Given the right opportunity, I'd be a hero. (laughs) It's a good thing I can't establish long term trusting relationships with people because in the end, those just bite you in the ass at some point. And like I keep trying to give and give and give and like be a good family member. But like that's not going to work out long term. So like I'm an Ethan Hunt. Which is so sad. (laughs) Well, it's also really interesting because it's like Tom Cruise is not in like Hollywood parlance, I would say. And people can disagree with me and I like it's totally fair. Like he's not a very masculine guy. Mm. He's not posturing himself the same way that like The Rock does or like Jason Statham does where there's secondhand masculinity that has everything to do with the way they act. They're very gruff. They're very sort of like non-emotional and Ethan isn't that like Ethan is very gregarious he's like really funny he like is very openly emotional and like and cares like I think that's one of his defining characteristics is that he cares a lot he's got both big brother and little brother energy somehow yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and he's described that way by when he first meets uh with Max. Mm-hmm. He's described exactly Sarah in that way by her mm-hmm. when she talks about his tone and the message that he sends, which is like serious but playful. Playful and aggressive. Playful and aggressive. That's exactly right. Yeah, that is big and little brother. That's perfectly said. That's great. And shall I does she call him dear boy too? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really really wish they explored the possibilities of that relationship because... Oh, yeah. Seriously. When she's on the train, she's like, am I going to get to see you? Am I going to get to see you? Like, she's hot. Dude, are you kidding me? Like, like young Tom Cruise and like a total like milfy Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, my God. God. Yeah. At that point, I think they were probably aware that the audience didn't really give a shit about like... (laughs) Ethan's like marriage (laughs) or like his personal life. It's like this is screen time that we could be using for Tom Cruise hanging off a helicopter right now. It's kind of like these movies are like, yeah, you know what? It's fine. We don't need to like make him into a sex symbol. He had that when he was young. He's an action symbol. Yeah, exactly. It's all about what his body can do in a very different way. Yeah. Like knowing what aspect of fascination your audience is here for and being able to cater for that is good self-knowledge. And I feel like you don't often get that for movies, but yeah, I guess that we're all agreeing like, yes, we want to see Tom Cruise do amazing stunts. And that's what we're all here for. And no one cares about him. Like, you know, his wife being sad that he couldn't make it to Easter church service. <laughs> I love movies that are realist and that strive to capture real life in some way or to just show sort of like the, the like transcendental boredom of human existence. I really respect cinema as a way of doing that. And I also love movies that are like, no, 
<laughs> and that are just entirely about spectacle. Something that we have, you and I, Alex, have talked about recently that we're trying to do is like, how can we talk about movies on the internet in a positive way? Because I feel like the model for kind of internet criticism is like, this sucks and here's why. Mm -hmm. And I really like this model that we're trying to do of like, I really like this. And here are the complexities and the things going on with it and the things in it that are problematic. And yet it has a place in my heart or the heart of this guest. And here we are. And I was watching CinemaSins about Mission Impossible once. And they were like, why aren't there videos, video cameras in that vault room at Langley? And I was like, you know what? I'm not the, the kind of person who cares. I don't want there to be cameras. <laughs> I want Tom Cruise to have to drop in and it can't get any warmer and there can't be any noise. And we have to watch him silently probe this glowing chamber with his body looking like he could perform Peter Pan. And that's what I want. I respect any movie that is so 100% a movie and knows what it's trying to deliver. For so long, because of the way the internet deals with like everything sucking in one way or another, and that's the that's the discourse, yeah. we discount our relationship with uncool things. And as a result, mm. like don't really get to know the part of ourselves that like uncool things. Which for many of us is like... Uh, most of ourselves. The most of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I remember, and like, I, I saw the first Mission Impossible a long time ago. And then relatively recently, the past five, five or so years, I saw like the second or third one. And I just loved, I loved, I think it was the Philip Seymour Hoffman one. So probably the third mm -hmm. one. I just, I loved everything about it. Like, I loved that it shut my brain off. Like, I loved that it was like tight. I loved that it worked like a puzzle. I like that it does that very, very well. And I like revisiting this one. I like that it does, it does that very well. And I also, also like this thing that we seem to talk about every time that we talk about a Tom Cruise movie, which is like, because Tom Cruise's life is so locked down in a really interesting way, mm. all of his movies in one way or another serve, I don't know, accurately or inaccurately, but I like to think somewhat accurately as a window into what his life might really be like mm. or like what his interests are, particularly when you think about how much control he has over the movies. So it's so interesting that every Tom Cruise movie is like a Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. into understanding a bit more about Tom Cruise. I love that. You know, it seems like every 10 or so episodes we get to like figure Tom Cruise out a little bit more. So that's fun. Yeah, that's one of our projects as Americans. I like that. Movies are about your relationship with them or Tom Cruise's relationship with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is like the old time notion of celebrity. Yeah. People have incredibly limited access to you. Like one of the appeals of the movies that you release is that people have to scour them for clues of what you're like, as opposed to just looking at your Instagram to see what you ate 15 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. He's a movie star, not an influencer. Yeah. I don't know what he would be influencing people toward. So Scientology, I think I, I don't even say that as a slight, like he's this, you know, kind of spokesperson by default. But what if he had another pet project? What would it be? We don't know. <laughs> Right now, it's him going into space. Going to space. Yeah. You know what? He should go to space. Good for him. If one rich idiot is going to go to space, I want it to be Tom Cruise because he would he would have the time of his life. Okay, so we know that John Voight is kind of the father, is the work father in this movie, mm -hmm. in Mission Impossible. Who is the daddy? There is just no world in which it's not Vanessa Redgrave, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Can we just call it? 
<laughs> just talk about Vanessa Redgrave in this movie. Like, what does she, what space does she occupy in this movie? You know, she's so hot. She's oh so God. hot. And I don't, norm, normally I have a fairly intellectual understanding of the hotness of femme women. But with this, I'm just like, oh my God, I would lick the soles of her shoes and I would thank her for it. That's what this character is like to me. It is really nice to see like an older woman who like yeah. in a movie is like very clearly sexually attracted to someone and it's like part of the movie and like and yeah. is like respected by the like recipient of that attraction as like something yeah. that is like fun and playful and like flirty and like and if you're gonna allow anyone to do that, I mean like Vanessa Redgrave, like, oh my god. <laughs> I just forgot how much fun it looks like she's having in that role <laughs> just like i was just like looking adoringly at tom cruise and just sort of like like he's a beautiful creature who washed up on the shore of her island it's really rare these days to see someone who like is able to exude that much sort of like <laughs> potent sexual energy like in oh, yeah. their role even though it's like a pretty handy role like max just based partly on how little we know about her is a character who feels within the movie like someone who like has her life under control because she's running her own outfit and she's also doing something wildly unethical, but she's not doing it in a way she's constantly justifying to herself. Like she's decided the parameters of her villainy. And yeah, I think some of that sense of power comes from that. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Nicholas Russell for talking with us about this fine spy thriller movie and franchise and about Tom Cruise and about all the things that are going on there. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who's our producer. You can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. She makes all these episodes sound great. And we are working on releasing songs from the show. We've been releasing songs in each of these episodes for the past uh, year now and we have a volume of songs from the show coming out ideally in september keep an eye and ear out for that we'll let you know over on social media where you can find us at twitter and instagram find us on patreon where you can support the show and uh get bonus episodes over at patreon.com slash you are good that's it for now next week we talk about the toby hooper classic the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Isn't that a Halloween film? You're wondering. Well, it takes place on August 18th, my friends. And guess what? It'll come out on August 18th. We look forward to doing it. And are you wondering what movies we have coming up? Because I should probably tell you. I can tell you. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre next week. We have Heavyweights the following week. We have Legally Blonde. We have Hairspray. We have Dead Poet Society. We've got a great lineup on the way. We love doing this. We love doing it with you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.